Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com slash hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. As part of our series celebrating February, American Heart Month, this episode explores some of the origins of inequities found in cardiovascular disease, in particular in the original research work, as well as the diagnosis and treatment, and focuses on how we can restore balance in this care and deliver the great care to all of our population. The progress in cardiology has been incredible. Probably the most visible innovation for most people is the stethoscope in the early 1800s, developed to allow a doctor to listen to the heart without having to press his ear to the patient's chest. This was followed later that century with early versions of the electrocardiogram, or the ECG or EKG, depending on where you come from. As our understanding increased, the medical profession noticed the rising incidence of deaths attributed to heart disease. And as part of the investigations into causes, the now legendary Framingham study was launched shortly after World War II in 1948. The insights from this continue to inform our understanding of the causes of heart disease and a long list of risk factors that contribute to cardiovascular disease and early deaths in patients. It is extraordinary to think that a study that collected data from a population of little over 5,000 people every three to five years continues to drive our understanding, especially in the context of the world today that is filled with so much real-time data on our physiology. There are new studies and data collection activities in progress, but for now, these insights remain seminal to our understanding and prevention of heart disease. As part of the treatments developed over that time, we first saw a heart transplant take place back in 1967 and have continued to add to the knowledge and treatments in cardiovascular disease care with an improved understanding of atherosclerosis with echocardiography and cardiac catheterization and new therapies that are using transcutaneous approaches. But like many parts of our medical infrastructure, much of this research was built on data from a subset of our population and one that was not representative of the population it was aiming to treat. In this episode, we explore these inequities in research, diagnosis, and treatment in cardiovascular care in the United States. Join me on the Healthcare Upside Down show as I talk with Dr. Wayne Batchelor. He's an interventional cardiologist and a director of the Interventional Heart Program at Innova. Hi, Wayne. Welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. Happy to be here. 
So uh, we've seen tremendous progress in terms of treating cardiology disease uh, in this country, around the world, some amazing innovations. But all of that is founded on research that has essentially been skewed based on the selection of individuals into the trials. How do we start to address that so that we have a more representative sample that actually gives us the appropriate information for treating the population that is very diverse? Well, it's an excellent question, Nick, and you raise a really important point. Research is pivotal to the commercialization of devices, and it's the way in which we actually garner our estimates on the safety and the effectiveness or efficacy of new devices and, and pharmaceutical agents. So research is, is absolutely critical to the appropriate um, dissemination of new devices. The challenge historically has been that uh, the research that leads to the estimate of how effective these devices are and how safe they are has uh, been skewed in terms of the populace, uh, the population of patients enrolled in these uh, research trials. The vast majority of patient participation in cardiovascular trials has been um, white men with women less represented and minorities uh, poorly represented. And another group that's very important are those who live in rural America, uh, in rural parts of the United States, who also don't have access to research and also commercial uh, devices as much. So this is a really important topic. The FDA has recognized it as such. And in fact, the FDA in April of 2022 issued guidance to medical device companies as to their expectations um, to see diversity, uh, in, enhanced diversity in clinical trial uh, participation. So we, we've got a bigger focus, we're starting to improve. What are the elements that start to bring more diversity into that group and, and how are we doing relative to other countries? Well, it's, it's kind of a good news, bad news uh, story, Nick. Um, the, the good news is relative to other countries, uh, interestingly, United States has uh, more diversity in clinical trials on average, especially within the pharmaceutical cardiovascular trials. Um, outside the United States, minority enrollment is actually significantly worse than in the United States. So we, we're relatively better than our uh, partners across the world. However, we're still not nearly uh, hitting the mark. So for example, um, in cardiovascular research studies, we get maybe 25, 30% uh, participants um, being women, maybe 5% or less uh, African-American and often one to 3% uh, Hispanic. So we've got a long ways to go um, uh, considering the demographics of our population, as you know, about 12% African-American and probably 13 to 15% uh, Hispanic now. So um, number one, we're getting more diverse as a, as a country. And one of, part of our responsibility is to, is to ensure that the devices and drugs that we uh, release in terms of commercialization to our patients have been vetted and tested in the patients uh, uh, in whom they'll be used. So this is an increasingly important uh, issue as we become more of a diverse country. So I, I think elements that contribute to that, obviously, you know, diversity in the, the treatment, in the administration of that, the individuals that actually participate, but also um, representation. One of the challenges that I, I see repeatedly in trial um, uh, recruitment is actually attracting some of these individuals who 
for a variety of reasons, are resistant. Some of it is economic, but some of it is actually resistance to the system that has essentially mistreated it, for, for want of another term. How do we start to correct that so that we can attract more of these individuals in? Well, you know, it's a very good point. The, the number one um, thing I think that's crucial to moving forward is educating our populace on what research is making sure that all of us understand what exactly is clinical research? What are you signing up for if you're asked to participate in a study? The first thing that comes to mind in a lot of minority patients is fear and mistrust. We've got to break those barriers down. We've got to, number one, we've got to rebuild trust uh, in all um, segments of society with regards to research. People need to understand. I almost wish our research IQ as a nation was better. You know, we, we just don't have a good understanding of how research is performed. Most people think, many people think it's kind of this guinea pig approach where you're going to be experimented on. They, they, you know, some of these uh, historical atrocities still ring in, in true in people's minds, whether it's the syphilis Tuskegee study or some of the uh, issues related to Henrietta Lacks uh, and the use of her, uh, her cells. So we've got to break these things down and discuss them, vet them, and make sure that all of us understand what research is like today. It's extremely heavily regulated, and uh, there's extremely high uh, moral and ethical standards for performing research. We've got to make sure that people understand that, and that um, research participation is a, is, one, is a wonderful thing that you can do that's uh, altruistic, but also, in some cases, it's, it's a way in which you can access novel therapies with unique solutions to problems that you would have no access to otherwise outside of a clinical trial. So there's a lot of work to be done, Nick, but I think the first thing is just educating the whole populace on what research is and, and how it's regulated. So uh, clearly progress being made, as you said, good news, bad news. Um, you know, I, I think it, it continues to be a journey. But let's talk about some of the innovation and, you know, the areas of focus that you have. We've had some extraordinary progress in terms of some of the treatment modalities that are, are just completely changing the face of safety in terms of treatment for conditions that are, quite frankly, lethal but undiagnosed. Tell us a little bit about what's going on there in your world. Yeah, as an interventional cardiologist, you know, I've been a born witness to some of the most impressive advances in medicine, in my opinion, over the last uh, 10 to 20 years. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. Procedures that used to, or diseases that used to require open heart surgery, long stays in hospital, very difficult recoveries, especially for older, frail individuals. Now we're doing them routinely and sending patients home the next morning. Um, so for example, aortic valve stenosis, narrowing of the aortic valve is a lethal condition, untreated, the median survival is about 1.5 years. Nowadays, if you're diagnosed, you'll get that valve uh, replaced with a new valve, go home the next day and immediately um, recover, be walking home and enjoying a good quality of life and, and, and normalization of longevity, uh, survival basically returns back to normal. So these things are extremely effective, these new transcatheter therapies that we have for valve procedures and for coronary interventions. Um, the recovery is very quick uh, and you can avoid open heart procedures and they've been shown to save lives and improve quality of life. 
So the question is, how do we um, how do we allow for all the individuals across the country who are in need of these procedures to get them uh, effectively and in a timely fashion? That's the next phase of challenge. There's been tremendous discovery. The question is, how do we disseminate it so that it's spread to all those patients who are in need? And that's in, that particularly includes uh, minorities who are less likely to receive transcatheter aortic valve replacement, for example. Um, if you look at all the procedures that we do across the country for aortic valves, only 4% of those uh, patients are minorities. And uh, we recognize that, that uh, minority, uh, minorities within the U.S. population are, are much higher, probably three to four-fold that for African-Americans, for example. So, so we're, we're under-treating groups. And then there's another very important group of those living in rural America who don't have direct access to some of these specialized centers that do these procedures. We're not really extending our tentacles effectively to those folks. And there's significant undertreatment of patients living in rural America. So we've got a lot of work to do. Um, we've got a lot to focus on this. I can tell you that multiple stakeholders are engaged in this from the FDA to industry to academic medicine and patient advocacy groups. And I'm starting to see some, some pretty good activity. I hope that it'll translate into some meaningful differences, but this is a very difficult problem to solve overnight. It's gonna re require a lot of different approaches, both from the patient side, the industry side, the academic side and the regulatory side. So let's start at the, the foundation of that, which is identifying those patients. I think in, you know, somebody, an individual comes to see you, typically that would be a referral. They wouldn't be a sort of primary starting point, although maybe in some cases. So this is in the catchment of this, it's identifying that particular clinical condition. Are we failing there? Is there opportunities for improvement? I mean, I think particularly in the rural sense, is this something that's easy to identify? Are we missing it? Or is it just we find it, but we're not doing the right thing? Combination of both. But I think it's more the former than the latter. I think we're missing, uh, un, un, you know, we're, we're missing patients who have severe aortic valve stenosis and who are dying from it without even being diagnosed. I'm pretty convinced of that. And that's happening at a greater level or to a greater degree in minorities, uh, patients who have poor access to care and patients who live in rural areas of the United States. So that's number one. Our diagnostic sensitivity is not what it should be. This is a very easy condition to diagnose. Basically, if you have a stethoscope and you know how to use it, you should be able to hear a heart murmur in many cases. Uh, there are digital stethoscopes that can even make the diagnosis for you nowadays that are very easy to use. There's handheld ultrasound devices that are really uh, very uh, capable of uh, making quick diagnoses. And then of course, um, if, you're, if you even hear a heart murmur, if you're simply referred for an echocardiogram and ultrasound, the diagnosis is usually very clear. So these are very low sort of uh, tech, easy uh, interventions that we can do. We just need to spread them more effectively across the country um, so that they're, we're able to pick up more of these patients who have conditions and are not aware of it. Most patients don't know that they have a valve problem. They just start feeling like they're slowing down. They get short of breath. They get fatigued. Many people just think it's a part of aging, and then they're not evaluated and not diagnosed. So we're missing a lot of folks on the front end. Now, once you're diagnosed, unfortunately, there's also some disparities in um, referral uh, uh, after that. And we see that uh, 
Blacks and Hispanics are less likely to be referred for valve surgery once diagnosed and less likely to get that, uh, that those procedures. So we've got work uh, from the diagnostic side, but we've got work to do also on the referral uh, side and, uh, and the therapy side. Uh, but if I were to invest a dollar into this, I'd put probably 70, 80 cents on, on the diagnostic side. I think we're missing a lot of folks. Yeah, I, I think that's important to understand. So, I, you know, there's an element of this that is tied up with the individuals that are part of that screening process. But this is also an individual thing. It's something that we as um, patients, and we're all patients ultimately in some sense uh, or another, that we have to um, pay attention. And I, I think you've highlighted this very eloquently. The lack of access is part of our sort of contributory cause that precludes people because there's cost associated with it. We've got to improve that whole primary care process. I think there are tools available to us that would allow for an improvement in that identification. You talked about the inequities. Is some of that tied up with the focus of this? Is, is this uh, available throughout or is this really focused in academic centers? I mean, how widely distributed is this capability? Obviously, you have it, but where else can you get it? Well, an ultrasound device or, you know, we call it echocardiography is fairly ubiquitous in medicine. Most hospitals and clinics have access to these types of technologies. It's a very basic device. The challenge is we're still not doing echoes. And, you know, Perhaps the, the best solution would be to have screening echoes performed in all particular patients who have a particular risk for heart disease at a certain age. We're not there yet. The cost effectiveness of that, uh, of the cost effectiveness of that has not been um, confirmed and it's not a part of our US screening program. Perhaps one day it will be, I don't know, but theoretically, if we just did echoes on all patients who were at risk, we'd catch a lot more patients. We're not there yet. So, you know, the patient almost has to advocate for him or herself. Um, if you have symptoms as a patient of shortness of breath, it's unexplained, especially if you're uh, over age 65, um, ask your physicians if you, uh, if you have access to healthcare about an echocardiogram, an ultrasound, or just ask about valvular heart disease. I know it sounds crazy. You'd like to see that the providers are doing that for you, but Sometimes you have to advocate for yourself because this can go under the radar screen and be misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed. And uh, as I said, there, the clock starts ticking if you have severe aortic stenosis and you start to see patients just falling off the, uh, the map uh, relatively silently. They just have cardiac arrest or heart failure and they, they, they succumb to the illness. So uh, I think our screening efforts could be, um, could be better. Uh, patient advocacy could be better. And then also physicians and providers, not only physicians, but all um, practitioners who see patients on the front end within public health clinics need to be really aware of this. I, I hate to say it, but the use of the stethoscope, the proper use of a simple stethoscope is a dying skill. Um, you know, when I went through medical school, we had to be very adept at the use of a stethoscope. I know in the UK still, it's, uh, it's training is, is very... Uh, emphasized. It's, it's a training thing that's uh, emphasized. In the United States, to be quite honest, I'm not sure that a lot of um, physicians and practitioners understand how to use their stethoscope effectively to diagnose valvular heart conditions. 
As soon as you have a heart murmur, unless you have a good doc who can figure it out with a stethoscope, you probably should get an echocardiogram. That's just not happening. And it's not happening particularly to certain individuals that you've mentioned. So once it's diagnosed, you need the referral. Uh, what's the sort of uh, presence of this around the country? Is there availability that most people can get to or is it, you know, sometimes a significant distance? Yeah, well, there, there are distance issues. Um, we've done some work and published some work on how distance relates to your likelihood of getting transcatheter aortic valve replacement. We studied the entire state of Florida and showed that the likelihood of you actually ultimately getting transcatheter aortic valve replacement at a center, it varies sevenfold according to population density. So patients who live in rural parts of Florida have a one-seventh likelihood of getting TAV or transcatheter valve replacement than those who live in, for example, Miami-Dade areas, uh, more populated areas. So the where you live and your zip code is, is unfortunately is a determinant of this. Um, and also, as you can imagine, socioeconomic status has a big Im uh, impact on this, whether you, you have access to health care, whether it's Medicaid or, or, um, or private insurance has a big role, plays a big role in this, as you can imagine. So there, there are a lot of determinants of, of whether or not you actually get to where you need to be. Right now, there are over 800 centers who do uh, these valve procedures in the United States. So we've got many, many more centers than when we first started out uh, in 2012 with commercialization, um, but still there's underrepresentation. So, you know, it's complicated, Nick. Uh, it's not one particular variable. And if we're going to solve this problem, it's, it's going to require an approach from um, that involves uh, providers, uh, diagnostic uh, capabilities, referral patterns, uh, regulatory processes, and of course, patient advocacy. So I, I think you uh, highlighted this point earlier on, but you know the advocacy piece of this is as much about the patient and being informed. And you know, I liked your. Uh, research IQ concept. And, you know, I would apply that to almost diagnostic IQ. And it's not that we have to be diagnosticians as a, a, a patient, but we need to be aware of the potential um, to influence our particular circumstances, especially, especially in these minority communities. So some of this seems to be an educational uh, component. Obviously, us as uh, the, the clinical and healthcare team, we've got to distribute it. So uh, as you think about um, the future, what are you excited about? What's, what, where do you see all of this going? Well, I, and I couldn't be more excited as an interventional cardiologist. The valve therapies that we're offering are getting uh, uh, more uh, safe, more effective, less invasive. We're able to treat more patients and they're able to recover quicker live longer and live better. I mean, it, it's just been absolutely amazing what's happened in the last decade. I think that this is, there are several other valve conditions that we're gonna go after, several other heart conditions that we'll be able to uh, treat more effectively with less invasive um, options for patients. I think that um, the, the specter of artificial intelligence and screening uh, 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 machine learning is going to factor into this tremendously because we have access to electronic health records. So we can actually right now through some AI detect out of the millions of patients that we serve, who is likely to have a valve condition, which is really fascinating. And perhaps it's through these artificial intelligence uh, applications 
that we'll perhaps be able to cast our net more broadly and, and be more precise in who we pull in for uh, further diagnostic testing. So I'm very excited about the future. I think that uh, technological advances are gonna work in our favor. The question is, how are we gonna use it in a manner that will break down some of these barriers and, uh, and get to rid of some of these really uh, rampant disparities? Wayne, uh, I think exciting times. Um, I think there's some real positive uh, steps and moves and trajectory, but obviously a lot of work still to be done to actually get folks in and get them the treatment that we know is available and works exceptionally well. Wayne, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much, Nick. So we are taking steps in the right direction to distribute the care available to our whole population. But to speed up that process requires we double down on education and updating our patients and clinical teams to the latest available therapies. Your better pill to swallow is to enable the early identification of cardiovascular disease by empowering your primary care and public health teams with the information and tools to identify patients at risk. Provide the tools and resources to guide the patients into the available care options, even if that requires referral and travel out of the home network. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare, as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone. <laughs>